The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Revival. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah 64, 1 through 4. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood. And the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard. Or perceived by the ear, no eyes have has seen a God besides you, who acts for those who wait for him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you've been with us uh, in recent history, we just closed out a sermon series going through the book of Colossians. We spent about eight months in the book of Colossians going verse by verse. Um, it was great. Loved it. I'd go back and do it again tomorrow if I had the choice, but we're not going to. We can keep moving forward. Uh, but here coming up, I just want to let you know it's coming down the, the pipeline here. In a few weeks, we're going to start a, a longer sermon series um, that's going to basically be, and it's timely here as we're, we're, we're moving into the election cycle here, uh, of what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus, specifically looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew's Gospel. So we're going to spend, a, well, the rest of the year and, and kind of even get us into 2021 going slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm looking forward to that. But what we got today and what I'm really excited about here for the next four weeks we're going to be kind of putting our anchor down in Isaiah 64, jumping to the Old Testament for a little bit. And if, if you've got your Bible, I'd love for, for you to open up to, it's, it's about halfway. It's a little bit to the right of halfway in that pew Bible. We're going to be sitting in Isaiah 64. And here, as Leah read for us this morning, what we're seeing is essentially the prophet making a plea for revival. That God would breathe life into his people, into the church, into the world at large, and do a, an amazing work. And, and so I want, I want that. I, I want to be part of something like that, to experience God uh, in an in incomprehensible way, but also at the same time being very palpable to know that God is on the move. He's at work. So I, I've got a couple of motives. I want to share those with you for why we're spending four weeks here in Isaiah 64. First of all, as we come out of COVID, uh, the, the hysteria of COVID um, this season, and, and also other things going on in our country as well, this season has exposed a real need for Jesus. Like maybe, perhaps unlike ever before, we have come to the realization that y'all need Jesus. I need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. We need Jesus. We see COVID, injustice, the election cycle coming. The United States, while, you know, a great place, is kind of a hot mess, a little bit of a dumpster fire uh, some, sometimes. Um, and then you take into account that, like, as you move closer to home, like, as you, as you think about the Quad Cities um, and what's going on here, there was a, a, the most recent Barna poll that sort of laid out the, the, the most church cities, the most unreached cities, the least church cities. The Quad Cities, believe it or not, is number 27, number 27 on the list of unchurched cities, meaning that there are more people who don't go to church in the Quad Cities than there are people who are spiritually interested or intrigued at all to even step foot in a church anywhere beyond Christmas or Easter. 
So, so we're thinking, like, you'd anticipate Seattle, um, San Francisco, New York, uh, places like that to be, like, high up on the list. There, there's some of those major cities that the Quad Cities is actually worse than when it comes to being a churched city. And so here in the Quad Cities, there's a need for gospel presence. And if you look at the book of Isaiah here, and, and as, as you kind of chronicle everything that Isaiah has been saying up to this point, because here we are jumping in right at the tail end uh, of this book of the Bible, uh, what Isaiah has been pointing out in his own circumstances are that things are not necessarily going well either. That, that there's a lot of things that are going very poorly. People are walking away from God. The city is sort of crumbling away. And, and then here we see Isaiah have this, the need, the reality of the need of the city kind of prepare him in, in this longing for revival. So I, I think that we are in a season where we need this. We need Jesus. We need revival. Two, what the church or what the Americanized church has typically answered with in sort of the response to correct the problems of our country, the remedy is not a biblical version of Christianity. It, it's sort of like Tom, I don't know, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he, he took the Bible and he cut out all the parts that he didn't like, basically. And he was left with just what's really moralistic. This fits my already pre-existing sort of ideals. That's a lot of the ways that the American church has taken the Bible. Like, okay, well, we like this part about the Bible. We like this part of what God has to say, but not the rest. And so we just sort of shove what we don't like away. And what's happened has left a very impaired church. And, and at the core of it is this competition or... or the, What's happened in the Americanized church is there's been a merging of the kingdom of God and the United States of America. That, that this thinking, this ideal that the kingdom of God, like the answer to the prayer for the kingdom of God advance is the United States of America. And that's just a fallacy, okay? That's not, that's not this. And, and, and as we sort of move into this ideal, what happens is people get this, there's this appearance of spirituality, there's this appearance of godliness, and we're told about this, Paul talks about this uh, to, to Timothy, about the appearance of godliness, but no substance. And that's, I think, a lot of the times what happens with Americanized churches, is that there's the appearance of spirituality, but what's happening is we're using God as a means to an end, instead of the end, the chief end of man, being to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So God is used as a resource, as a tool to get to that. So I, I, I would like to see this church be a biblical church, not an Americanized church, a biblical church that engages with our culture. And so I think that that drives us into the scriptures. So here we are driving into the scriptures. And three, my third motive is that I want to see God move in big ways in my life and in the life of other people. I want to see God use Sacred City Moline, Sacred City Davenport, any other gospel preaching church in the Quad Cities to bring a movement of gospel awareness to our cities, to our region, and far beyond. That we would have personally here, I'm personally motivated, and for us as a church to have a deeper passion for Jesus. To, to just be so enthralled with him and what he is. So that, that more, like when we roll out of bed on Sunday mornings or any other day of the week, we can't wait to see what Jesus has in store for us. So we can't wait to live our lives as worship for him, that we'd have this tenacious hunger for the kingdom of God. And as we do so, we would see God flip our city upside down for his glory and for the good of the people here, for all the people of, of, of the Quad Cities. And to see Sacred City be a catalyst for this gospel movement. And, and we sort of laid this out. At the, if you were here back in January before all the chaos happened, February, late February into March, our, our, our vision for this year was to double by discipleship. 
right? That God would bring, like we were praying for God to bring growth both deep, like we would become uh, more rooted in the love of Christ, but would also compel us outward that we would see more people come to know who Jesus is. And so I, I was still, that's still on my radar. I hope it's on yours. I still want to see God do that. And so we're going to pray big prayers and hope and be expectant that God is going to answer in line with uh, uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, where he says that God is able to exceed what we ask for or what we even think of. Okay, so I want to see big things happen in my life, in the life of this church, and in our city. And as we look at this thing of, of, of revival, Scripture testifies that God, like it's not something we have to twist God's arm for. It's not like God's like, oh, well, if, if you really want it, I guess, I suppose, I'll, you know, I'll revivify people. Like, it's, he wants this. God wants us to wake up to him, the reality of what he's doing in this world. And we can see biblically where this happens. The prophets are, are asking God. They're, they're pleading with God to make this happen. We see how it's been historical, that it's not just in the Bible times where we've seen God bring revival, but, but we've seen the Great Awakening, the, the Second Great Awakening. We've see, seen it in China, in Africa, places all over. I'm pretty sure I got to experience a micro, a micro revival when I was in college. I was just thinking about this the other night of like what my experience was, seeing people come to faith of Jesus, seeing people who were nominal Christians, Christians be engaged and be passionate and seeing God sort of it, like surge forward the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so if it's biblical, if it's historical, why not ask for it right now? Why, why, why wouldn't God want to do this? And so we're going to be talking about revival, what it is, what's our part in it, why we should want it. And as we wade our way through this series, there's a few things that I'm hoping, like, like a byproduct of seeing revival unfold before us. First of all, I just want us to be more passionate. Like, I want to be more passionate. I want us as a church to be known for our passion for Jesus, both in worship. So, like, I don't know if you... If you step into a room where people are really passionate about Jesus, singing and lifting our hands, and there's just a movement of the Spirit, it's something that you just, you want to taste again. You want to experience that again. I want to be like that. I want to be a church that people step in the room and like, whoa, God is here. God is doing something, and these people are fired up about it. Not in a way where we're like, we're manufacturing, not in a way where it's like a phony sort of passion, but an authentic passion from the heart that spills forward in worship and on mission. And I think to do that, God, God's going to have to wake some of us up. We're going to have to, God is going to have to wake us up in a way where we rub the sleepy spirituality that we're used to out of our eyes and give us a bigger vision for what it looks like to walk with Jesus. Not only to, to do that, but to see it, but to actually join in and participate in what God is doing. So, so I want us to, to be a more passionate church. Two, I want to see more people come to faith in Jesus at the end of 2020 than we've seen in the previous three and a half years of Sacred City Moline. Like this would ignite us in such a way with such passion for mission, for worship, that we would desire to see other people, those people that we love, neighbors, coworkers, friends, family, saved because we are more fired up about mission and evangelism now than ever before, and we see people come to know Jesus. And number three, I want to see our city impacted. Like, whether you're in church or outside of a church, you have this, this awareness that something is going on in our city. Something is improving in our cities. 
And the only way that we can explain it is that God is on the move. The kingdom of God is advancing. So, so those are things that I'm hoping to see. Those are some of the products of revival. But here we come back to the question, what exactly is revival? What are, what are we asking for when we're saying we want to see revival? And Scripture is packed with flashes of revival. This, if the, the narrative of Scripture sort of has this ebb and flow of seasons where God is bringing his people back to him, this reviving of the peoples, and then there's this, this, this you know, dip where people are wandering away from God. So this is sort of a cyclical thing where God moves in, people draw away, God moves in. I, I, I want to see, like we see in scriptures, God moving in. And one of the places where we see this revival thing happening clearest, or at least the language of it, is in Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 4. Let me read this for us once again. It says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence when you did awesome things that we did not look for. You came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or ear perceived. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, if we had to really get to the core of what is revival, the defining element of revival is the felt presence of God. Three times in these four verses, actually three times in the first three verses, we see Isaiah making note of God's presence. It's when God splits, rends the heavens, when he, his glory, his, his presence bursts out of heaven and infiltrates the earth, and he comes down to be with us. Now, this is, this is sort of figurative. This is poetic language, because if you, like, God is omnipresent. There is no place right now where God isn't, but what Isaiah is asking for, he, he, I want to, he's like, he wants the manifest, the, the experience, the, the palpable presence of God to be clearly presented. And so when we talk about revival, revival is nothing less. Like we can, we can have the, the products of revival, and if we miss the presence of God, we don't have a revival at all. Right? That, that's, just, that's just some sort of marketing manipulation or something. I don't know what it is, but that's not revival. Revival is nothing less than a radical encounter with the true God. As Isaiah points out, there, there is no other God. There's one God. Now, it's radical. When we talk about this radical encounter with the true God, it's radical in the sense that when God comes down, stuff happens, right? When God comes down, Things are going to happen that you can't quite explain. In verse 3, Isaiah says he sees awesome things that nobody even asked for. They're unpredictable. It's even beyond comprehension. In verse 1, we see the mountains quake. Literally, the foundations of the earth, the most steady thing about our existence, is rattled to the core. That which is unmovable is now trembling in awe and reverence of God. And in like way, just as the mountains quake and tremble, people those who were enemies of God now see him for who he is. That they are moved in awe and they themselves are changed. But there's also what happens. Not, not only is this happening, but there's almost like a, a rapid or an expedited change in this movement of revival. You see it in verse 2. You, you see it when, when the 
Fire kindles brushwood, right? You, you throw fire on, on, a, on a pile of leaves, it's going to burn up fast. Or, or think of a molecular, uh, what's going on in a boiling pot of water, right? The molecules are bouncing around faster. There's this expedited change that happens. Now, typically, we're used to this gradual gospel change that happens. Paul tells us that typically, this is like the, the norm here. In, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul says that God's always changing people through the gospel, but it's typically little changes from one degree of glory to the next, right? Just one incremental change happening, and there's not a lot of clarity on how long it's going to take, but, but it's a small change. But in revival, God basically hits the fast-forward button, right? I've been playing Mario, with, Mario Kart with my son and you, you hit that gold mushroom, and you just hit that zoom, 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 zoom. That's what revival's like. It's like this burst of movement, of gospel movement that God's done, that he's provided for his, his people. And when we see God and his presence being made known, that the heavens are, 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 are being split into his presence coming down, people who are far off are brought near. We see new Christians come to know who Jesus is, people who were probably indifferent spiritually. We see this, like, you, you want to go through the history books, look at the Great Awake, Awakening, or George Whitfield, who's one of the greatest preachers who's ever walked the earth, and he, he's preaching, and he's seen thousands of people come to know Jesus in one night, right? Preaching the gospel, can you imagine that? Thousands of people being converted in one night. People who weren't going to church before, and now all of a sudden, Jesus captures their heart. But not only do people who are far off get converted, but people who are sort of already in the, in the circle of the church, people who have maybe been nominal Christians their whole life, people who have been going through the motions, there's this new awakening that happens where their apatheticness, their complacency now is infused with, with, with zeal and passion, that they're moved in personal devotion, that they, that they just want to know Jesus more. It drives them as learners, as missionaries. They want to go forward and engage with more people. And as a product of this, you see churches being matured. New churches are being planted. And, and in, the, in the big scheme of things, the kingdom of God is advancing. And as this happens, there's also this direct and positive impact on the culture at large, right? The city at large. During the Great Awakening, Ben Franklin, who is not a Christian, was not a Christian. He, he was an a, a, a avid journaler. He, he observed what was going on in a city. He said, it, it was wonderful to see the change in the inhabitants, the general citizens. From being thoughtless or indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious. So that one could not walk through the town in an evening without hearing the psalm sung in different families of every street. So that there's this awareness that something's going on. Even if I'm not in the church, there's something going on in our city. Now this is really what I'm getting here. True revival is this. It's a season where God moves and awakens individuals to know himself where churches are revitalized, and where the culture is impact for God's glory. So, so it's, revival goes beyond what's going on here in church. It, it's, it's, it's more than just a few people individually experiencing God's presence in a new way. It's happening as individuals in the church, and then even beyond into the city. This is God's vision, his God-sized vision for our city that God would become non-ignorable here in Moline, Rock Island, Quad Cities. And this is an unexpected phenomenon. Verse 3, 
Again, Isaiah says, you did awesome things that we did not look for. He's he's, he's saying that we didn't do this. Like this, This wasn't us doing this. This was God. He was doing something where he produces people with passion, uh, who, who worship passionately, who are living missionally with passion. And this is the jolt that the Quad Cities, this is the jolt that Sacred City, this is the jolt that I need to be enlivened. Now, we can't muster this up. We, we, can't, we can't schedule revival. We can't drum it up to bring it down ourselves. Revival is something that God does. This is where um, a lot of charismatic tribes, Pentecostal tribes, get this twisted. Uh, they, they think, okay, we're going we're gonna to put a date on the calendar, a weekend on the calendar, we're going to throw up this big tent, we're going to bring in a bunch of uh, uh, even, uh, evangelist preachers, uh, we're going to make about 100 altar calls and hope that all kinds of people just start running down the aisle, right? They, they're just ready. Now, that, that isn't revival. That's revivalism. It's, it's two different things. Revivalism is man-centered, it's technique-based, and oftentimes it is emotionally manipulative. See, that, that's not what we're after here. We want God to split the skies and come down. In fact, I always think about uh, Beaver in Chronicles of Narnia. He says, he, this is perfect definition of what revival is. He says, Aslan is on the move. Right? That Revival is God on the move. Revival is God's prerogative. And while it's God's prerogative, it doesn't mean that we can't ask for it. Because the first word that we see here in verse 1 is, oh. He's saying, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is a, a prayer of longing. In fact, there's commentators that say this word, oh, for the reader, is the most important word of this passage. Because it expresses, it models for us the deep longing for God and his presence that we ought to have. So we see Isaiah, he's, he's captured, oh, that you would. He's captured by this idea. His imagination has been overridden by this. He's gripped by the question of what would it be like? What could it be like if God were to rend the heavens and come down? And so he has this prayer, this, this longing, this desire deep in his heart. And as you look through the history books, sustained, passionate prayer nearly always precedes revival. I can only think of one exception, the story of Jonah. Jonah was very unwilling to go to Nineveh, and he did kicking and screaming. He finally went, he preached the gospel, and he did it probably the worst way. He's like, you better turn around or God's going to smack you down. And guess what? The whole city was revived. And that basically proves my point, that, that revival is God's prerogative. If he wants to do it, he's going to do it. But here we see in Isaiah modeling this desire for this kingdom, the, the, the heavens to be split and to come down, that we would also echo the prayers of Isaiah. And, and I just wonder, how many of us pray with that kind of passion? How many of us have our imaginations of the kingdom of God infiltrating my world, my life, been the dominant theme, what's driving my prayer? And if it hasn't, let me just say, let's, let's start today. After all, 2020 was meant to be the year of praying big prayers, right? Why not start today praying these big prayers that God would rend the heavens and come down? And, and as we do that, we're, we're, we should be expectant, right? 
that God would, we're expectant but not expecting. It, it's not a given. It's not guaranteed to happen. One of the, one of the greatest uh, things that I can think, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was spent half of the first part of his life as, as a medical doctor, but fought with God for a few years, fighting the call to ministry, became a preacher, great preacher. He preached and prayed for decades for revival, but never saw it. Just constant, steady growth. And so there's no guarantees. We can talk about revival. We can pray for revival. We can preach a billion sermon series for the rest of my pastorate here and never see revival. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't ask for it. In fact, what it should do as we talk about revival, this should stir your desire, your longing for it, so that you can see the kingdom of God advance here in the Quad Cities as it is in heaven. And I personally just want to take away the thing. Like Jesus says, you, you don't have because you don't ask. I, I, want to, I want to remove that here. It, it, so if revival doesn't come, it's not because we didn't ask for it. So let's ask for it. Now, as exciting as the, as the fruit of revival is, right, the substance, again, of revival, the real desire that we have for revival is to be in the presence of God. This is nothing more than a profound, life-changing encounter with the true God. And we talk about this, we long for this, and we just, like, what does this look like? What does it look like to actually have an encounter with God? I think the best way to think of it is, like, to think of fire. Fire is used through Scripture to, to allude to God's presence here often. And fire does two things. It provides both light and heat. You're in the presence of fire, you can see and you can feel warmth. This is what happens in God's presence. What happens when you shine a light in the darkness? You can suddenly see things. Well, what happens when God makes himself revealed? You, you suddenly see things. This light represents knowledge. God illuminates. He shines a light on our hearts and on our minds. For we were once stumbling in darkness. God flips on a light switch and we are now in the light as he is in the light. And this is the story of every single Christian that I was once tr fumbling around this world trying to do what I wanted to do. I, I, was stuck in, you know, I was stuck in drugs or I was stuck in unhealthy relationships or trying to prove myself in, in my work, my family, whatever it might be. And God flipped on this light switch and he made me see what I was just tripping over myself. So in the light, in verse 2, we see this. God makes his name known. He makes his name known. He flips on the lights, and, and as he makes his name known, two things happen simultaneously. One, we see who God actually is, right? Our, our misconceptions, our, our false narratives of, of who God is sort of crumble down, and two, we see ourselves for who we are. So, one, we see God that he is holy, and two, we see ourselves that we are sinners. Now, this is we see this happen in Isaiah's story. Chapter 6 of, uh, of the book of Isaiah, he, 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 this happens personally for him. It's a great place to go to. And in this moment where, where Isaiah has this personal experience of the encounter of God, this is what implanted his desire, his longing for this God-sized vision of revival. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. I'll read the whole thing. Six verses one through four. I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And on the train of his road filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each with six wings. 
two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, um, and with two he flew, and one he called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And here again, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So Isaiah has this, this vision of God. He hears these seraphim, these angelic creatures singing, holy, 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 God is full of glory. Now, I could spend the rest of my life trying to unpack to describe what Isaiah saw. It's impossible to do because every description, human language is incapable of articulating what it is Isaiah saw. It's too wonderful. It's too great. The holiness of God is too terrifying. You think about it, 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 every time God manifests his presence, it's like sensory overload at the m- Mount Sinai, like the earth shaking, trumpet blasts, there's flashes of lightning. This is what it's like for Isaiah to be here swept up in the, in the presence of God. God's godness is too much to handle. And you think about it, I, I, one of the things that just like bums me out about church people, is that we're so underwhelmed by the holiness of God. Oh, it just means that he's, he does the right things all the time. No, no, no. The holiness of God is his complete otherness. There's nothing more entertaining, nothing more awesome, nothing more captivating than the holiness of God. And if you think, if you think God is, is boring, then that light switch is still off. Because the holiness of God is riveting. It's, it's like a little boy Right, who's convinced that girls are gross. They just don't understand yet, right? So God isn't born at all. In fact, as we see God for who he is, we see how, how awesome he is. And there's this, there's this untamable nature of God that, that is a little bit scary, right? And I think this is one of the reasons why Americanized Christianity is what it is, that, that people are actually paying their pastors to per- keep them from experiencing the presence of God because it's too terrifying. Because if, if God is really like this, then what's he going to do in my life? What kind of, what kind of you know, changes is he going to make? How is he going to flip my life upside down? And so instead of moving into the presence of God, it's like, I'm okay with keeping myself at a distance. God and his holiness is disruptive. Just like Aslan, right? Is he safe? No, but he's good. So Isaiah has this realization. He sees God for who he is. He's blown away, completely impressed. And then his next realization is that, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He's, he's, he, he, he sees God. It's kind of like our, our confession. You know, we, we, see, uh, we do the call to worship. We see God for who he is. Our confession is saying it's like, we see God for who he is, which makes me look in and, and evaluate myself and see that I'm not like God, that there's something broken inside of me, that I'm not worthy, right? So, that, so this is what happens. When you encounter God, you have this, oh, my, oh, shoot, <laughs> Right? Oh, look at how great and amazing and awesome God is. And then it's like, oh, but I'm kind of a train wreck. That's exactly what happens when we, with Isaiah. He, sees, he contrasts God's godness to his meanness, and he realizes how pathetic and alarming this contrast is. And it's not just, you know, like, when we experience this, it's not just because we've done a couple of bad things on occasion. Right? It's not just because we made some dumb mistakes this week or whatever it might be but that every fiber of our being is flawed. 
Every, every little nook and cranny of our lives is tainted by sin, that the power of evil has not only ransacked this world that we look at and clearly say, there's something wrong here, but we can say, this power of evil has gotten to me too, that I'm exposed. Now, this is the light part, right? We, we see God, we see ourselves. And if that's all that happens when we step into the presence of God, we're just doomed. That's it, right? That's, we're just now aware that things are not going to go well for us at some point. We need more than just light. We need heat, the heat that fire provides. This is what launches us into revival. By our, by, light by itself will leave us scared and running. It will lead us, leave us cold and distant and trying to, to separate ourselves from God more than we already are. But if we want to be revived, enlivened, we need the heat of God's presence as well. And we see this in the fire. In Isaiah 64, verse 2, right? What, what, what's the illustration? He's talking about fire, kindling brushwood, fire causing water to boil. He's talking about the heat and even go back to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah is giving his own recount of meeting God, being in his presence. He says, then I've seen a, a seraphim fly over me, and on his hand was a burning coal, and he took with his tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your sin is taken away. Your, sin, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. See, Isaiah experiences the heat of God's presence, the cold to his mouth. And this points to Jesus, that Jesus is the light of the world. He, he shows us who God is, but also reveals our sin as he hangs on the cross. He is the burning desire of God's heart. Ray Ortland says in his commentary, but this holy thing, speaking of the cold, touches Isaiah's dirty mouth, and it does not hurt him. It heals him. What we must see in the context of the whole Bible is that this burning coal symbolizes the finished work of Christ on the cross. He went to the place of sacrifice. His dying love is the only power that can awaken his people as dead to God as we are. And awaken us, he does. He comes to us today through the Holy Spirit and says again, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Welcome into the, whole, into the overwhelming delight of my presence. When the magnitude of that grace touches Isaiah, he is awakened to live for God. That's how revival happens. That's where revival starts. Jesus shows up with light and the heat of the gospel. He awakens us. He revives us. He illuminates our minds and our hearts to see God for who he is and who, us as we are. He warms us with his sincere love and desire. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about it like this. It's like, he says, it's logic on fire. Like that's what it is, to be in God's presence. It's logic on fire. You, you see truth, but it's not just truth that's off cold and distance. It's, it's, it's burning inside of you, the warmth of God's light. That's the gospel. And as we're brought into the presence of God, we are changed. 
Revival begins in our hearts and works outwards. It's going to leverage us. It's going to push us outward to reach other people. And you see this with Isaiah's own story. That's why he's writing. That's why he's 64 chapters deep in this book. In, in Isaiah 6, God says, I've got this mission to accomplish. Whom shall, I, whom shall I send? Isaiah says, send me. Because he's experienced both the light and the heat. He's been captivated by God. And when we are captivated by God, we want to share the light and heat with others. And Jesus, we know, is eager to receive those people just as he was eager to receive us. Church, I, I, want, to be, I want to be a church that experiences God, that we go through seasons of revival where God does big things. And our call right now is to pray, to long for it. Dane Ortland, uh, son of Ray Ortland, who I just quoted, says that real prayer ignites with belief and longing. Do you believe that God can do what he says he can do? Yes, I do. Do you, do you long for it? Yes, I do. Well, that's when prayer really starts. To believe that God will do what he says he can do and our, our longing to do it. So, church, as we step into this series of revival, I pray that we would pray big prayers. That we would pray like we've never prayed before. That we would not push away from the presence of God, but draw near to him as he draws near to us. Because in Christ, he has given us access. Not just access, he's made us well. He's healed our brokenness so that we could live life to the fullest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you. I, God, we want, I got C.S. Lewis on my mind. He says that we're just caught up playing in, in mud pies and, and, and mud pits that we can't, even envision a vacation at sea. I pray that you give our, our imaginations a jolt. I pray, God, that you would stir within us a deep longing for this work to happen. I pray, God, that you give us a taste of your goodness, that you would allow us to step into your presence and experience the light and the heat. And, God, that in that we would be a people on fire, that you would use us in mighty ways, to advance your kingdom, to do what only you can do. We pray this in our, our, our beloved Savior's name. Amen. 